Thank you. Thank you both. Um, I am uh, Jason Poling. I had the privilege of serving as the pastor uh, of New Hope from 2003 until 2015, uh, and uh, and then for a little bit, kind of uh, for the subsequent years, uh, as Joe took over and New Hope upgraded at the pastor position. I am uh, very glad to be uh, back here to preach this morning, and uh, probably the best thing about it is that uh, you got rid of me, but you kept the rest of my family. So. Um, uh, and I have, there, there are a number of things that have, have changed in my life over the last five years. One thing I noticed, just how much grayer uh, I am than I was. Um, I also uh, became not only an Episcopalian, but a priest in the Episcopal Church. Uh, and uh, I did something this year that I swore I would never do, uh, which is that I got on social media. Um, no, no, well, uh, the jury's still out. Um, I've, I've, uh, I've, I've begun to experience Twitter. I, I just, I, I used to think of it as this absolute pit of just nothing good at all. And then I kept encountering a few people who were offering things that were really uh, sometimes wise, often clever, often generative. And so here I am now preaching with... Uh, on the bulletin cover, my image chosen is of an Anglican baby Yoda. I, if it were not for Twitter, I would not have learned about baby Yoda, but he's been all the rage. Uh, for those of you who don't know, there, there's a show uh, on Disney Plus, The Mandalorian. It's this, one of these Star Wars spinoffs. Actually, I think pretty good, uh, but, uh, but there's this cute little baby Yoda, and we're not quite sure at this point exactly, is this a clone of Yoda, is this a descendant of Yoda, is this simply somebody in the same uh, race as Yoda, or or uh, somehow related to him otherwise, um, and uh, uh, he's, he's a little baby, but he's also 50 years old, so one of the things that was going on in an interesting way, I thought, on Twitter, uh, was the question of, would you baptize baby Yoda, and uh, I'm serious, like, this was really, really interesting. And, the, you know, so if, if, if Yoda, you know, the Baptist would say, well, if he's old enough to ask for it, you could baptize him, and 50 years old would be the age of majority, certainly for us, but maybe not for his race. And then, of course, Anglicans are saying, well, you know, we, we don't have any problem baptizing the baby, so we'll baptize him. Uh, and then I had, you know, friends on Twitter who were saying that they would be Yoda's godparent, and, and then... Um, I think where I come out is I think we could do a provisional baptism. There's a form in the baptism service where you're like, well, we're not sure if, if we're supposed to baptize you, but in case it's okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, but, but one of the questions, of course, is, uh, and, and this is a fascinating theological question that we're not going to get into, if Yoda is not human, and he's not, um, and if sin is something that is only has only infected humans in the way that it has. I mean, sin breaks everything, and, and all of creation uh, is, is wounded because of sin, and humans brought sin into the universe. But if Yoda is part of a sentient race, baby Yoda, that is, that did not sin, does Jesus' atoning death on the cross apply? Is it even necessary? C.S. Lewis's book, Paralandra, kind of goes into this question. Or you could say, well, the, the story of human sin is really the story of every sentient being, every, uh, every creature that rebels against God and against his purposes. So, yes, at the end of the day, you would need to baptize baby Yoda and make sure that, uh, that Christ's atonement is purchased for him. This sermon is not about baby Yoda, but I really 
really like Baby Yoda, and I love the Anglican Baby Yoda that my, my uh, colleague out in South Dakota made. Um, but it does relate to our passage in that it has to do with the question of what do you do with a different sort of people from your own, and how do you understand them in light of the relationship that you have with God? Our text is from Isaiah in chapter 11. And this is from the early part of Isaiah. There are kind of three parts of the book of Isaiah. The first part that, uh, that goes up to about chapter 39 is uh, very likely written to the people of Israel before they are sent into exile. And so here's what Isaiah says. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, a spirit, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh, and he will delight in the fear of Yahweh. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth, he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness, the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. And in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. Now, when we read this passage, there's probably a couple of things that automatically come to our heads. One is, is we, you, you may have noticed Christmas is coming. Um, you maybe saw it like something on TV or, or, or something else. Um, and, and you see, this is a, a verse that's sometimes read in Christmas services, and you, you get this, a little child will lead them. Everybody thinks about the baby Jesus and, um, or baby Yoda, I don't know. Uh, but... The scene that's being cast here is one that we look at and we recognize as absolutely different from the world that we live in and any world that we could possibly imagine. You see, right now, if you're going to have the wolf lie down with the lamb, you're going to need to replace the lamb pretty frequently. If you're going to have the kid lying down with the leopard, you're going to be buying a lot of goats. That is the nature of, well, nature red and true tooth and claw is the world that we know. And so this picture that's being painted where you would let a little baby play by the hole of a snake and put his hand in the asp's den, even though occasionally the fantasy might enter your mind at 3.30 in the morning when they will not shut up and will not go back to sleep, the reality is that's not the way things are. No, what Isaiah is painting here is a picture of a future that 
his people couldn't possibly imagine. It's a, a future that God is going to bring about where things are going to be radically different from how they are now. But I have to tell you that to an ancient Israelite, just as implausible as the cow feeding with the bear is the idea that the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the people's and the nations will rally to him. See, this root of Jesse image, what, what Isaiah is giving us here at the beginning when he says a, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. The stump of Jesse, Jesse is, of course, David's father. And the, the idea here is Isaiah is telling a people whose glory, whose national glory is long past, who frankly seem to have as much vitality as the stump of a tree, that there's going to be a shoot that comes out from it, that that tree is not really dead, that there is new life that's going to come. But that shoot is specifically coming out of the stump of Jesse. This is a Jewish, a Jewish shoot. This is an Israelite shoot that's coming up. And this picture, then when he comes to this at the end of, of, uh, of the passage in verse 10, when he says that this, this root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, and the nations rally to him in his place of rest, will be glorious. I mean, for one, you're talking about a little shoot coming out of a stump. The idea that that would have any, anything impressive or glorious about it is, is strange. But, but the idea, not just that it would come out, but that the nations, not just God's people Israel, but that the nations would rally to it. Well... That just seems unimaginable. Again, Isaiah is writing to a people who, by this point in their history, literally for hundreds of years have been fighting with somebody. Now, at this point, they've also managed to fight with themselves. They had had a civil war, maybe 140 years or so before he, or more before he, he uh, is writing this. But this is a nation that has been basically trying to play off one global superpower over uh, against another and is finding that its diplomatic efforts are increasingly unsuccessful. Not long after Isaiah writes this, the nation will, in fact, be defeated by the great empire of Babylon. Its leading citizens will be hauled off into exile, into captivity, after, his, after its king has his eyes gouged out. And he's led off in shackles. Before his eyes are gouged out, by the way, he gets to see his son slaughtered right in front of him. So the last thing he sees is that. So, you know, th that part of the story doesn't end very well. But it reflects the fact that there had always been, for God's people, this enmity, this discord with their neighbors. Now, this is not unusual. The course of human history is a story of nations fighting against nations, of people trying to take things from other people that they want to have, and if they're strong enough to do that, then they usually manage to. Where that's unusual for Israel is that Israel was designed to be a people who would, in fact, have security, who would not have those conflicts with their neighbors, that, that a nation that God would protect, that God would, would fight for them in battle, and he would keep them safe from their enemies. The the deal was that they would do that if they were faithful to him. If they followed his law, then they could live well in this land that God had gave them. But in fact, they decided they wanted to be like everybody else. Rather than having God as their king, they wanted a human king. And God warned them, it's not going to go well with you if you do this. But they insisted. 
And so they said, we want to be just like all the other nations. And they were. So when you fast forward several hundred years after this story in Isaiah, you get some really remarkable events entering the flow of history. We actually see them portrayed on, uh, in the stained glass windows behind me above the Reredos. The Reredos is the big Anglican name for that thing behind the altar. Um, up uh, above it, you have the, the scenes, uh, of course, of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. But on either sides of those, we have some scenes from his very early life. The top one on the left is the scene of the Annunciation. This is where the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you're not going to believe this, but you're about to be with child. A bigger portrayal of that is in these two windows over here. But Mary says, look, I'm the Lord's servant, so may it be to me as you have spoken. And then when she goes and visits her relative Elizabeth and finds out that Elizabeth is also pregnant with John the Baptist, and that baby leaps in Elizabeth's womb when Mary shows up and Elizabeth is delighted and greets her. And then Mary gives us this magnificent song. It is called the Magnificat. If you have these, uh, if you can reach one of these prayer books in your, in your pews, I love the way that Cranmer, Thomas Cranmer, back in 1549, took this song that Mary sang back in Luke. Chapter 1. This is page 50. I'm sorry. Thank you. Page 50. I'll give you the old language, the, the really old stuff. There's a more updated version a few pages later. But Mary says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowliness of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations will call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath magnified me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him throughout all generations. He showed strength with his arm. He cast down, the, uh, scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their seat, and hath exalted the humble and meek. He filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. And he, remembering his mercy, hath holpen his servant Israel as he promised to our forefathers, to Abraham and his seed forever. This is the song of a young Jewish girl, somebody who clearly was, was soaked in the language of the Psalms. This, this is the song of somebody who is rejoicing in the fact that, that Israel's God is coming to fulfill the promises that he had made long, long ago, almost 2,000 years before to the patriarchs that he would give his people a place and he would keep them safe. And so the next great song that we have, it's the next song in Luke and it's the next song in the prayer book and in, uh, also on page 50, Canticle 4, the song of Zechariah, the Benedictus, where Zechariah, who's John the Baptist's dad, Mary's uncle, once he's finally able to speak, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up a mighty salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spake by the mouth. I love, I love the old language. He hath hope and he spake. 
we, we just kind of keep this in. I, I think partly just to be annoying to everybody else who doesn't talk like that. I love it. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our forefathers and to remember his holy covenant, to perform the oath which he sware to our forefather Abraham that he would give us, that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest, for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people for the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light that them that's, to them that sit in darkness, darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the way of peace. This song of Zechariah, like the song of Mary, is one of a Jewish voice rejoicing in what God is doing for his people. Even at the end when he talks about giving light to them that sit in darkness and the shadow of death, you might maybe see that as a hint that he, he could be talking about other people, but really he's talking there about bringing back from the places they've been scattered all of God's people. To the, Sitting in darkness and the shadow of death refers to them living under the, the domination of, of foreign oppressors, bringing them all back together would be that kind of redemption that Zechariah is talking about. And so those events happen between the, the windows at the top and the bottom on the left-hand side. And the bottom, of course, is the nativity, is the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you look up to the window on the right-hand side of the Reredos, up on the top right, that is the visit of the wise men. You will note that that is not the same picture, not the same window as we have on the bottom on the left, is it? Because they did not happen at the same time. If your nativity set has wise men in it, you should take them and put them somewhere else and maybe walk them into the creche. But not on Christmas Day because they weren't there then. They, they come traditionally as early as Epiphany, which is January 6th. That's why if you sing We Three Kings as a Christmas hymn, let alone, God forbid, as an Advent hymn, you're singing it completely at the wrong time. Also, I hate that song. <laughs> but we see in this window the, the, the Magi coming and bringing the most holy Pac-Man to the Lord Jesus Christ as he sits in the manger. But what's symbolized here is not just some guys bringing presents. The Magi would have been astrologers. They would have been wise men. Possibly they could have been kings. More likely they would have been the great minds of the rich intellectual traditions of Babylon, the place where God's people had been sent into exile. And somehow in their tradition, probably Daniel had something to do with this. They, they had embedded there this idea that, that something was going to happen way off to the west and that there would be some astronomical event that they would need to respond to and so that's what they're doing and so when they come and they bring gold and frankincense and myrrh to the baby Jesus this is not just some guys bringing presents this is the nations coming to Israel's Messiah to offer him tribute 
to give him gifts, to give him honor. This is a picture of the nations, the ones that were in rebellion against God's people. And in the case of Babylon that had captured and enslaved God's people, this is the nations now giving proper tribute to Israel's Messiah. And then on the bottom right window, we have the presentation of Jesus in the temple. This is what would have happened 40 days after his birth. According to Torah, Jesus would have been brought to the temple along with his family. We know from the scriptures that, uh, that his parents brought a, a couple of birds. They didn't have the wealth to bring the, uh, the, the sacrifice that would have been indicated first, but they could go with the alternate. But they came and they, when they showed up there in Jerusalem, they encountered this guy named Simeon. He's the one who is portrayed there holding the baby Jesus with the red halo around his head. Simeon had been hanging around in the temple courts Waiting, Luke tells us, for the consolation of Israel. He was righteous. He was devout. The Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. You can imagine what it would have been like to be Simeon. Every day you get up. Maybe today's the day. And sometime around 4.30 you're like, probably today's not the day. But every day, moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what Torah required, Simeon took him in his arms and he praised God, saying, and here's the fifth canticle starting on page 51, Lord, now let us to thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For these eyes of mine have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. Now we hear that language and it's so noble. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace. Sometimes when I think about this, I think he would have sounded more like, finally I can die. Lord, mine eyes have seen thy salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people to be a light to lighten the Gentiles and to be the glory of thy people Israel. So this Messiah, Simeon recognizes, is not just Israel's Messiah. I mean, he is. But he is Israel's Messiah for the sake of the whole world. Not just this one nation, not just this one people. He is Israel's Messiah and a light to lighten the Gentiles, the nations, the people that had been abusing and oppressing God's people, the people that very moment who were under the thumb of yet another foreign empire, Rome at that point. And so when Paul, in his letter to the Romans, when he finally gets to the end of, of his long and, and rich meditation on God's faithfulness, when he gets toward the end in chapter 15, He says to the church in Rome, church that has both Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus in it, he says, accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcision, that is the Jewish people, on behalf of God's God's truth in order to prove, in order to confirm 
the promises that God made to the patriarchs. Again, that sounds just like what Mary said in the Magnificat. That sounds just like what Zechariah said in the Benedictus. So God is, is coming through on the promises that he made to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob so that, and here's the twist, so that, Paul says, the Gentiles may glorify God, so that the nations may give proper worship to the one true Lord of the universe who is also the Holy One of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. And here he, Paul picks up these verses out of the Old Testament. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. And again, it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. And what's fascinating about the passages that Paul quotes here, the first one, well, the first one comes out of Second Samuel. It's from a song that David wrote. And it's a song that David wrote about how God had given him victory over all of his enemies. And so when he talks about praising God among the Gentiles, he's basically talking about going into a prison camp where he's got a bunch of defeated Gentiles locked up and glorifying the God of Israel. And then in the next verse that he, he cites, that's from Deuteronomy, that's from a song of Moses. Praise the Lord, all you nations, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. This is the declaration of, again, a victorious leader of God's people who by that point had already humiliated their enemies, most notably the great superpower of Egypt from which God had rescued his people from slavery, defeated the greatest army in the world at that point, Pharaoh's army, by leaving their chariots on the bottom of the Red Sea. That whole song, again, you can go back and read those songs. Those songs are all about God's people winning victories over their enemies, these Gentile enemies. And then, in verse 11, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to him, all you peoples. That's basically more than half of Psalm 117. It's the shortest psalm. We really can't put a context to that. We don't know where that is. But those first two are from songs about God having victory over his enemies, God's people being vindicated. And then this last one, which should be familiar. Paul says, again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. That's our passage this morning. That's the very end, verse 10 of Isaiah chapter 11. The way we had it was, in that day the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples, the nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious so when we have the nations rallying to this shoot popping out of the root of Jesse, we have a picture that really does bind together the seasons that are on either side of us right now. The season of Advent, which we're in now. I appreciate that you guys have not one but three Advent trees up in the sanctuary. I think it's lovely. The, the season of Advent where we are waiting for the coming of Christ, and in our time we are waiting for his second coming as well as we are entering into the experience of those who would have been waiting for Messiah to show up the first time. 
And then the season that comes right after Christmas, the season of Epiphany, which is all about God revealing his glory to the nations. And that's symbolized most significantly by that picture of the Magi coming and giving their worship to the Lord Jesus Christ, the baby king. But this root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, and the Gentiles will hope in him. The rest of Paul's letter to the Romans is all about how it is that the Gentiles can hope in Israel's Messiah. We took four years to go through the book. I will recap it for you briefly. Jesus. That's how. Through Jesus, those of us who did not have the privilege of being born as literal descendants of Abraham, according to the flesh, we have the ability to approach by faith the Lord God because if we are the kind of people that had the sort of faith that Abraham had, then by Jesus' own faithfulness, he will reconcile us to himself. God deals with his enemies by making them his friends. More accurately, he deals with his enemies by giving them the opportunity to be his friends. I think those who don't want to be his friends, he's not going to force to come to the party. But God, who came among us as a shoot, a little child, he is also the ruler of all. And our hope is in Israel's Messiah. And so with Paul, I will offer this prayer as the worship team comes back up. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit.